0: Families can be tough, can't they sometimes? Families can be complex. They can be complicated. Familial relationships can be messy. I don't have a um, big immediate family. I only have one sister who's five years younger than me and a couple cousins who kind of grew up in my home. Um, But they kind of came in right as I was getting older and leaving the home. They're sort of cousin brother's. But I have a, a, a very large extended family. My mom is the oldest of 10, so she's got nine brothers and sisters. And I don't know how many cousins I have. I was kind of counting them up last night, kind of cousins and step-cousins. I, the ones that I know of anyway, I counted up about 25. And so I have a big family, and I'm, I'm close with a handful of them. And so most of our family at one point ended up in southern Oregon in the 80s, living in school buses out in the woods and... And it seemed like every family get-together, there was a broken windshield or a broken nose or or, or some kind of drama going on. And and, and a lot of the family was pretty messed up. There are several of my aunts and uncles that died drug-related deaths. There were a lot of lives that were ruined by drugs. A lot of heroin addicts and meth addicts. And just just some people that were really messed up. And, um, And not everybody, but a lot of them. I have an aunt. Um, and she married really young. She had two, two daughters. And then shortly after that, she got divorced. And then years later, um, she actually married her ex-husband's brother, who was a great guy. He was a believer. They have a great relationship. But I was um, thinking about it a little bit. And so I like to tease those two, two cousins of mine. I tell them, not only is your sister your sister, but she's also your cousin, because of that little relationship. And then one day I was teasing a little more. I said, guess what? Actually, you're your own cousin. <laughs> and so uh, I, I, I typed my cousin. And I said, hey, how's your cousin doing? And by your cousin, by the way, I mean you. <laughs> and um, <laughs> But I have a large family. Some are doing great, walking with the Lord. Some are somewhere in between. As we open up John chapter 7, we see that in a sense, Jesus was no different. He had some family issues as well. Jesus sort of lived in a a, a blended family, right? Jesus had a different dad than his brothers and his sisters had. And, And as we open the pages of Scripture, we see that not everyone in the family was on the same page spiritually. Not everyone in the family, initially anyway, was serving the Lord. Not everyone in the family was supporting one another. In fact, some members of the family were thinking that other members of the family, namely Jesus, were a little bit crazy. And so that's where we are in John chapter 7. It says, after this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders were looking for a way to kill him. It says, after this. Of course, the hermeneutical principle, after this, what do you do? You look and see, after what? Right? What's he talking about? After John chapter 6, because we're in John chapter 7. After the feeding of the 5,000. After Jesus transported the disciples on the boat, after Peter walked on water, after Jesus stood up and told the disciples that if you want to be my follower, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Speaking of communion, of course. After all of that, we find Jesus here hanging around in his hometown, hanging out in Galilee. And we learned that Jesus didn't want to go down to Judea at that time. By the way, sometimes it'll say they went up to Jerusalem or up to Judea. And Judea was actually south of Galilee, but in the Jews' mind, Jerusalem was the center. So everywhere else was they were going up to Jerusalem. So Jesus didn't want to go to Judea. He didn't want to spend time in Jerusalem right now because the Jewish leaders, it says, were looking to kill him. They were looking for for reasons to put him to death, right? Jesus has been out there. He's been stirring the pot a little bit. He's got a lot of people following him. And so the religious leaders had had enough. And they said, we're out to get Jesus. And so here we see it wasn't necessarily fear, right? We see that wherever the Lord was called to, he went. But he was wise. Jesus didn't needlessly put himself in harm's way. And I love that that we see this, this great balance in Jesus. Jesus was bold, right? He was, he was never afraid to do the Lord's will. He was never afraid to put himself out there. But he wasn't foolish with it. He wasn't needlessly poking bears with sticks just for fun, right? And I know a lot of us when we were young, we were kind of like that, Right? Well, let's see what happens. Let's try. But Jesus wasn't like that. And, and I see this great example for us here because sometimes the Lord calls us to do scary stuff. And we need to be wise, but we need to be courageous. And we need to be obedient. Reminded of Proverbs chapter 28, verse 1. It says, The wicked flee, though none pursue them. But look what he says. But the righteous are as bold as a lion. Don't you love that? The righteous are as bold as a lion. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, verse 2, Jesus' brother said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works that you do. So the Feast of Tabernacles, some of your Bibles might say the Feast of Booths, and Hebrew it's Succot, and, and, and that literally means tent. And so this this Feast of Tabernacles, it was a major Jewish holiday. It took place right after the harvest was completed, right after the people had just brought in all the all, all the grains and all the fruits, and the people, they had just been working hard, right? I probably know farmers here, but it was a very agrarian culture, and, and people were involved in farming, and, and it was a lot of work bringing in the harvest. They didn't have They didn't have harvesters and threshing machines. Everything was done by hand. And by the time harvest was over, the people were exhausted. And so they they had this holiday right after harvest, a time of rest, where they commemorated being set free from Egypt. You remember that the Jews dwelled in the wilderness for 40 years. And Scripture says that they dwelt in tabernacles. And that word tabernacle, it just means a temporary dwelling. It can be a tent, it can be a booth, it can be a temporary structure, whatever. It's interesting that in John 1.14, when John says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt there is the same word. Jesus became flesh and tabernacled among us. That he, that he took up this, this temporary dwelling among us. And so this Feast of Tabernacles, what would happen is it is prescribed in Leviticus chapter 23 verses 33 through 44. And what would happen is the Jews, they would make these temporary structures. They would make stalls or tents or little booths. And for seven or eight days after the harvest, they would have basically they would go on a camping trip. Any of you guys like camping? I'm not a huge fan, and it's okay, but that's why I have a job, so I don't have to camp, right? So we have a house, it's okay a little bit, but, you know, I kind of grew up camping, and I don't love it. But anyway, so that's what they do. They they celebrate what the Lord had done for them in Israel. So they go on this camping trip. And it's still a, a, a wildly popular thing in, in Israel today. I was looking at some pictures of the, uh, of the Feast of Tabernacles, and they have these little, little plywood huts that they camp out in for the week and, and have this big feast. So, so this Feast of Tabernacles is taking place in fall. And Jesus' brother said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea, so that your disciples there may see the works that you do. No one who wants to be a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Jesus' brother said, hey Jesus, you're working all these miracles here. You're, you're doing all these, all these magic tricks here, Jesus. Why don't you head up to the big city so you can show your works there too? Don't waste, your, don't waste your talents here in Galilee. Go up to the big city. Show all your disciples what they're missing up there. Come on, Jesus. You want to be the Messiah, Jesus? You want to be this big public figure, Jesus? You want to be a star, don't you? You don't want to do all your little tricks in secret. Get out there, Jesus. Get known. And you can kind of feel this little sense of, of, of mockery. And sarcasm here. And verse 5, it tells us directly that Jesus' little brothers didn't believe in him. And on one hand, maybe we need to cut them a little bit of slack. I mean, imagine their position. Being told that their big brother was actually God incarnate. That'd be a lot to take in, wouldn't it? what would it take to convince you that your big brother or that your little sister was actually God incarnate? Right? What would your little brother have to do for you to believe that he was the one that spoke creation into existence? It would take some powerful evidence, wouldn't it? And, and it's a lot to live up to, isn't it? Right? Every time you went out to play, little Mary would say, Don't forget your WWJD bracelet. Just ask yourself what your brother would do before you do anything. It's a lot to live up to. Your brother always does his chores. Your brother always cleans his room. Your brother never forgets to take out the trash. Why can't you be more like your brother? He never talks back. And so there was that. On the other hand, though, they knew Jesus more intimately than anyone else did. They knew his character. None of them could ever remember Jesus sinning. None of them could ever remember a selfish moment on the part of their brother or an impure motive. Never a, a wrong thought or action. Right? Growing up with him, when the truth finally started to come out, they should have been like, oh, it kind of makes sense now. Now I get it. But here's what happened, I think. They were so familiar with Jesus that they missed him. They were so familiar with Jesus that they missed who he really was. And I think that that's a risk for a lot of us who have grown up in the church, who have grown up around, around the faith, Sometimes we we get so familiar with Jesus that we can start to miss who he really is. We get so familiar with Jesus that we miss his, his grandeur and his majesty and his glory. Therefore, Jesus told them, my time is not yet here, for you any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. See, two things here that I want to note in these couple verses. First, we see something about the Lord's timing. There are times in my life when it seems clear that I know exactly what and exactly when the Lord wants me to do something. There are times when the Lord's will is very clear. There are other times when I know what the Lord's is, the Lord's will is, but I still am a little bit unclear on his timing. And and I think that's kind of Jesus' whole deal, isn't it? He knew what the Lord ultimately wanted him to do. He knew ultimately that he was to go to the cross, but it it was all about timing, right? And he realized that the timing hadn't come yet. I think it's true of comedy and God's will. They're both all about timing. There was a a season in my life when when I knew what the Lord's will was. When I was 17, uh, the Lord very clearly spoke to me and and showed me that I was going to be a missionary, that he's going to be involved in missions. He put that call on my life. But I didn't instantly find myself living on a foreign mission field. I went to Bible college for a year. I remember in one of the classes in Bible College, we were sitting in this, um, the class was called Victorious Christian Living. And it was a, it was a um, class on Joshua. And the pastor had all the um, students who were in the class kind of go around the first day and, and kind of just share what they felt the Lord was calling them to do. And, and, and kind of up in the front, there was this little blonde girl. And um, she said, you know, I, I feel like the Lord might be calling me to missions. So I married her. And... Um, See, there's that timing thing I was talking about, <laughs> right? So we got married, and um, but before we got married, we got engaged, and I ended up going to Russia for a little while, I went to this missionary training school, and my wife and I both um, served in ministry, and youth ministry at Calvary Chapel Eastside for about seven years, and so this was quite a few years after my calling, the Lord began to show me, okay, now it's time. You've had this preparation time, and now it's time to fulfill that calling. And so it was about 11 years from when the Lord first called me when I was 17 until Denise and I actually went to the mission field where we served as missionaries for 14 years. And and that's how it is so often. The Lord reveals something to us. He reveals what he wants from us. He reveals what he's going to do in us or through us. But it doesn't always happen instantly, does it? It takes time and patience. And it's important to know what God's will is for your life. But it's just as important to know when. You guys remember what Dr. John said? It must have been the right place. It must have been anybody remember? The, right time. the wrong time. All right, that was a very vague music reference. If you guys don't know who Dr. John is. Um, those of you who did get it, I'll give you props to that. Good job, Sam. Um, It doesn't do any good to be where God called you to be if it isn't when God called you to be there. If you're too early or if you're too late, you might as well not be there at all. You missed the appointment. So we need to learn not only to walk in the Lord's will, but also in his perfect timing. It's not only WWJD, but it's WWJDI. When would Jesus do it? That was another little... You guys are a rough audience. I'm going home. (laughs) Verse 6. I'm done with jokes for the day. Therefore, Jesus told them, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. I wonder as I read this, at first when you read it, it seems kind of harsh, doesn't it? And that may well have been how Jesus said it. I don't know. But I wonder at Jesus' tone here, was he being playful with his little brothers during this rebuke? I, I, I have three sons. And those of you who have never raised boys before, you don't know what you're missing. Right? Raising boys is very different than raising girls. And raising boys is very different than raising a boy. Right? You get those extra Y chromosomes in there, I don't know what happens. And every extra Y chromosome that's added Common sense is reduced by another 50 percent. It's crazy, and I can't even tell you how often one of my boys comes in all upset because he got punched in the face or kicked or pushed or whatever. And man, at my house, it's all it's either farting or fart jokes, or somebody lying about who farted. That's kind of how it goes. And so my boys are always playing this game, but they like to. They like to whack each other in the business, right? Whether it's a hand or a foot or a stick or really any object will do. And as soon as they do it, they yell, mashed potatoes. And all that to say, all that to say that while Jesus said this, I wonder if he was playing a little bit with his brothers, I wonder if he was teasing his little brothers a little bit. He says, look, guys, it isn't time for me to go. My time's not here yet. If I go up publicly, they'll kill me. It isn't my time to go to the cross yet. He says, but it's always time for you. The world doesn't hate me because it can't hate its own. Or sorry, the world doesn't hate you because it can't hate its own. The world hates me because I testify that its works are evil. Jesus later says in John fifteen eighteen, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. So Jesus says to the disciples later on, he says, don't be surprised when the world turns on you. It hated me too. It hated me, and if you follow me, don't be surprised when it hates you. A servant isn't greater than the master. And John took that message to heart because John would later write, some three or four decades later, in 1 John 3, verse 13, do not be surprised, brothers, when the world hates you. And he says, know that we have passed out of life unto death. John says, look, we've left the world system. We've left that system of of death and darkness. And so when the world turns on you, don't be shocked. Don't be surprised because that's what happened to Jesus as well. The world has always been opposed to followers of Jesus and it always will be. The world always loves its own and always hates those who oppose it. The world hates those who testify that its works are evil. And we see that all around us, don't we? We see, number one, that the world is growing more and more corrupt, without question. And when the people of God stand up, when we stand up for godly values and say, no, that's wrong, that's sin, that (coughs) that thing shouldn't be done, when we call out immorality, people say, oh, you're a bigot. Oh, you're small-minded. Oh, you're so judgmental. Oh, that's all hate speech. And the world more and more is moving to silence the voice of God and the people of God. The world is moving to quiet our voices, to quiet our influence. And we see that in the education system, we see that in the media, we see that all throughout the public square. And it's my belief that we're going to see a day coming soon when it will be illegal for us to proclaim the gospel message openly and completely. It will be illegal for us to proclaim sin is sin and good is good and evil is evil because it will be too offensive. It'll be, it'll be banned. It'll be outlawed. And I've said this before, and we can say so easily, oh, that'll never happen. This is the United States of America. We have the First Amendment. We have free speech. That never happened in Rome until it did. That never happened in Russia until it did. It never happened in China until it did. It never happened in Cuba or in Southeast Asia and in the Middle East or in much of Africa until it did. Right? People were free to worship and express themselves until the laws changed and they weren't. People were free to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ until they weren't. And as we proclaim the truth of God, no matter how gently, no matter how lovingly we do it, eventually the world will turn on us. The world will attack us because we don't belong to the world. We're not part of the world. Verse 8. You go up to the festival. I am not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, his, after his brothers left for the festival, he also went, not publicly but in secret. Upon reading those three verses, my first thought is, What? What just happened there? Jesus said he's not going up to Jerusalem and as soon as his brother leaves, he goes? Did the sinless, perfect, pure Jesus just lie to his little brothers? Of course not. So what does that mean? What just happened there? Without going into too much depth, it seems to be saying that he wasn't going at that time. He wasn't going yet, right? He wasn't going with them. And after this interaction, we see that he stayed in Galilee for a while. And after his brothers left for Jerusalem to the celebration, the father showed him it was time, and then Jesus went up. The father decided, the father directed, and Jesus went. But it says he went quietly, not publicly. Now at the festival of the Jewish leaders, Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus, asking, where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he is a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. So the Jewish leaders, it says, were keeping an eye out for Jesus. Why? I'll tell you what it wasn't. It wasn't to give him the keys of the city, right? We saw in verse 1 that they were looking for a way to kill him. They're looking for a way to murder him. They're waiting for Jesus and his entourage, for his posse to arrive, so that they can take him. But we see that Jesus says he comes in kind of at a low profile, no crowds, no publicity. But it says here that the people were also on the lookout for Jesus. Everybody was talking about Jesus. They had undoubtedly heard about Jesus feeding the 5,000. They had heard of some of his other miracles. They would heard this, this rabbi was teaching this, this new doctrine, and he, and he preached with authority and power, not like the scribes and the Pharisees. And so the people were whispering, saying, who is this Jesus? Where is he at? Is Jesus coming to the festival?" And it seems like, like the opinion was split a little bit. The jury was still out. It says that some people were saying, you know, that, that Jesus was a good man, that Jesus was a, a godly man, that Jesus was this man who was, who was proclaiming the truth. And other people are like, eh, we're not sure. Did you hear what he said about eating his flesh and drinking his blood? He, he's a little far out there for me. We think he's a deceiver. We think that Jesus is actually here to lead people astray. And there was a lot of different opinions about Jesus then, just like there are today. Right? There's so many opinions about who Jesus is, aren't there? You know, some people say that Jesus never existed. Or Jesus existed, but he was a, he was a good man. Or he was a good teacher. Or Jesus was a prophet. Or Jesus was a visionary. Or Jesus was a, a pioneer of social justice. But as you know, Jesus didn't leave us a lot of options, did he? Jesus made some very audacious claims about who he was. Jesus very clearly laid claim to his own divinity. Scottish preacher John Duncan said this in the 1800s. He said, Christ either deceived mankind by conscious fraud or he was himself deluded and self-deceived, or he was divine. There is no getting out of this trilemma. It is inexorable. And of course, C.S. Lewis made this argument famous, right? Basically, he told us there's three options concerning Jesus because Jesus clearly claims to be God. Remember, C.S. Lewis said he's either a liar, lunatic, or Lord. Those are the only three things that we can choose concerning Jesus. Either he was willfully trying to convince people that he was God when he wasn't, which would make him a terrible person, a fraud, a liar. Certainly not a good man then, certainly not a moral teacher. Or he really believed that he was God and he wasn't, and he was just crazy in which case we probably shouldn't base our lives on his teachings. Or he really was who he said he was. Those are the only options. A good man, a righteous man, a good teacher, or a prophet, those aren't really options for a man claiming to be God. Either he is God, and we need to submit to him and serve him, or he was a scam artist or he was insane, and we need to dismiss what he said. Either he was God and we submit to him, or he wasn't. And C.S. Lewis closes argument by saying this. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet, And call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And then he says this. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither lunatic or a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Isn't that so clear and concise? There's three options concerning Jesus. And unless you believe that he's totally crazy or a complete scam artist and a fraud, the only other rational argument left to us is that Jesus was and is indeed God incarnate. So all the people there, they're discussing Jesus and who he was. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. Everyone wanted to know about Jesus, but they were afraid. They're living in fear of their leaders. They were living in fear of the repercussions of following after Jesus, this man that was... Sort of had a, he was marked for death. And so they didn't want to discuss him openly. I'll tell you something. One of my favorite things about our faith, I guess aside from not going to hell, right? aside from being forgiven, aside from having free access to the living God, one of my favorite things about our faith is looking at, at church history. And seeing the boldness and courage of so many of those who have gone before us. From Peter and John there when they were preaching in in the temple and and the religious leaders came and, and, and whipped them, beat them, and told them, don't preach the name of Jesus anymore. And remember they said, well, what are we supposed to do? Should we obey God or man? And they went about boldly proclaiming the gospel. So many of the early church fathers dying for their faith. So many pioneer missionaries heading out into parts unknown, risking life and limb for the sake of the gospel. I I, I love the the boldness and the courage that we see in the lives of of genuine, spirit-filled men and women of God. One of my favorite stories in church history, I think I shared it before, um, it's called The 40 Martyrs of Sevaste. And according to church history, in about 32 AD, there was a Roman legion that was known as the Thundering Legion. And they were stationed in Sevaste, Turkey. And so this particular Roman legion, they're about to go out into battle. And before they go, they're all commanded to make this this sacrifice to the Roman emperor. And so to make a long story short, there are about 40 believers in this Roman legion. And because they're believers, they refused to bow down and and, and worship Caesar as as God. And so when they refused, they were threatened with death. And they still refused. And then the commanding officer said, look, if you'll renounce your faith, I'll I'll promote you. Instead of a, a sergeant, you'll be a lieutenant or whatever. And when they refused, they were stripped down naked and tied to these poles, and they were beaten with metal hooks. And after that happened, they still refused. And so the commanding officer, he said, I'm going to soften him up. So he threw him in prison for a few days, thinking that would break him. And when he brought him out of prison a few days later, broken and and bloody, they still refused. So he said, all right, this is enough. He handed it up to the next officer. And this next commanding officer didn't have any, any patience for traitors. So he commanded them all to be stripped naked and put out on this frozen pond in the middle of wintertime. And he said, that'll, that'll do it. That'll make them recant their faith. And to, make, to give them a little more enticement, he had the soldiers set up these baths along the outside of the lake, and he filled them with hot water. And he said, listen, you guys are going to stay out here, and you're going to freeze to death. But if any of you guys will recant, if you'll denounce Jesus, you can come. And you can have a hot bath and a meal and we'll receive you back. And so they're out there all night. And allegedly one of the guards watching had a vision and he saw over all 40 of these soldiers golden crowns hovering over their heads. Well as morning approached, one of the guys couldn't take it anymore. And he he came running back in. And he renounced Jesus. And he hopped into the bath. And as it happens... His body went into shock and he died. But (laughs) there's a little strange irony there. But when that happened, the guard who had seen this vision was so moved by the courage of the 39 others that he stripped off his clothes and said, I convert, I'm a Christian too. And ran out of the ice with the other believers. And in the morning, all 40 of them were frozen and they were dead. But their courage... And their boldness and their steadfastness is such a great example to us. And it's been such an inspiration for countless others throughout history. And again, I think of that verse in Proverbs 28. It says that the godly are as bold as lions, while the unrighteous live in fear. And I love that thought, that the godly are as bold as lions. As we close, as we bring this study to an end, I feel like there's a question that I have to ask here as we're looking at this story of Jesus and his brothers and this division between the people of God and the people of the world. And the question is, whose team are you on? Which side are you on? Do you belong to the world? Or do you belong to the Lord? And I'm not asking if you go to church. I'm not asking if you're religious. I'm asking if you know the Lord. Remember that old punk rock band, Bad Religion? There is a bad religion. And that bad religion is anything that tries to please God by our own works rather than coming to the Father on the basis of His grace and mercy and His loving kindness? Do you know the Lord? Do you care more about being accepted by this world or do you care more about being accepted by the Lord? Because here's the deal. You only get to choose one. You only get to be on one team at a time. But do you know what the good news is? You get to pick. You get to pick which team you're going to be on. You get to decide. On the flip side, though, you have to decide. You have to make a decision. By default, we're all on the world's team. And if we're going to switch teams, we have to make a decision. We have to choose to serve the Lord and follow Him and renounce the world. And I would just encourage you this morning to choose Jesus, to choose life. I would encourage you to be forgiven of the debt of your sins, to be set free from the bondage of your sins. I would encourage you to be bold and to be courageous and to serve Jesus fearlessly. As we close in worship, guys, as the worship team comes back up, Pastor Scott and myself and some of the elders will be on the sides. And if you've never given your life to the Lord, and you're ready this morning, this is your time. Come forward. Pray with one of the leaders. Pray with me. Pray with Pastor Scott. And in a few minutes, we're going to share in communion together. Heavenly Father, we love you, Lord. We thank you again for your goodness and your loving kindness. And we just pray if there's anyone here who hasn't given their heart to you, that they would do so this morning, Lord. And we lift up anyone who, who maybe has drifted and aren't where they should be, Lord, that you would just draw them back to you. And anyone else who just has anything that they need to lift up in prayer, Lord, that you would give them the courage to do so. I Pray for each one of us that we would find ourselves in a place where we can do business with you this morning, Lord. That we can come before your throne and just meet with you. We ask that in your name, Jesus.